primary care knowledge-based, lower urinary tract symptoms in men. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott and I'm here with Dr. Lisa Adams for an episode all about assessing lower urinary tract symptoms in men with Mr. Dan Burke, who's a consultant urologist. Uh, Yeah, we got Dan's take on assessing men with lower urinary tract symptoms, um, focusing on categorising the history into voiding or storage symptoms and thinking about the red flags. And it was brilliant then to get him to talk us through a couple of cases that were theoretical um, that illustrated some of the examples and talked then about management after that as well. Uh, so yeah, we hope you enjoy. So Dan, would you mind introducing yourself generally and giving us a bit of a background about you professionally? Yeah, no problem at all. So I'm Dan Burke. I am a consultant urologist or a consultant urological surgeon. And I'm currently working at the Manchester Foundation Trust, which is one of the biggest trusts in the country, which covers MRI, so the Manchester Royal Infirmary, Withinshaw, North Manchester, Altrium, and a, and, a, and a few others actually. So I kind of have no home. I jump around all of the place. So I've been, yeah. I've been here for consultant for fourteen years. Um, my urological training is mainly in the northwest, but I have bounced around a bit in getting here. So I've been down in Bath, London, France, and Australia. Wow. So travelled around a bit here. And suppose my main interest is really minimally invasive surgery. So it was laparoscopic surgery that really got me interested right at the beginning. And that's where my career has taken me. So mainly prostate and kidney cancer work. I've been, I've, I've been the cancer lead for urology. And outside, I, I love my sport, basically. Um, I have three very active girls. And I spend most of my weekend chasing around the northwest uh, watching and trying to coach netball, believe it or not. Nice. So I've uh, converted from a rugby player to a, to a netball dad. Oh, nice. <laughs> Natural transition. Um, thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate your uh, expertise on this because it's a thing that we commonly encounter. And so it's great to sort of start at the, the starting point, essentially, with initial presentations for men coming in. Would you mind talking us through your approach? So when you have somebody um, who comes in to see you or in, in the clinic, um, how do you categorise different lower urinary tract symptoms? I suppose the uh, there's a few ways you can do it, but the simplest way that I try is I try and work out the source of the lower urinary tract symptoms. And, and essentially, you can split them into voiding and storage. So essentially, is it the bladder or is it the prostate or is it the outflow tract? And in most men, it will be the prostate. There are some other things. So you're looking to sort of classify classic voiding symptoms or obstructive prostate symptoms are the straining to void, the hesitancy at, at the beginning and the long drawn out void and the dribbling at the end. So the question I often ask, certainly the older chaps, is if they go to a public urinal, are they the one that's standing there for ages whilst the younger guys, you get two or three that come in and leave? And that's sort of your your classic sort of prostate symptom scores Mm. your bladder is harder because your bladder really does overlap so there's a lot of symptoms that overlap but your bladder classically are more the the urgency the sort of the key in the door scenario where somebody comes home from work puts their key in the front door and desperately wants to go to the loo or turns on the taps wants to go to the loo you've also got your sort of uti type symptoms which is which is the pain on on voiding um the overlap is principally the frequency, and that's that's really the hard one because are you are you going often because your bladder's not storing the normal amount? So a comfortable void for most people would be about 400 mils, maybe just under. I I roughly work at 100 mils an hour into your bladder. That's that's what you should be producing. So normal person's going every three or four hours depending on what they're drinking if you're going more often than that either your bladder isn't filling up properly which is your which is a storage symptom or your bladder's not emptying properly so you're leaving half your volume behind so it takes half the time to fill up in essence that's probably going to be a prostate problem so an outflow so there are classic prostate few classic bladders but the bladder ones tend to overlap a bit 
Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> it's probably the clearest I've ever heard that. Um, <laughs> the we're going to go through um, cases for most of the rest of the um, the chat today, but. We did want to ask before we went into that about the red flags because it's always important to highlight those up front. Um, so if you're thinking about lower urinary tract symptoms in men, um, things like cancers, other neurological causes, what are the sort of red flag symptoms that you'd be worried about? Okay, so if we take the one that most men are worried about, so most men 60 plus are always worried about prostate cancer because they hear about it, they see see the little man emblem on everybody who's um doing on match of the day or on sporting programs that they watch so prostate cancer is what most people have got in the back of the head and the problem with that is if it's advanced prostate cancer you've got warning symptoms of the back pain the, the neurological issues the anemia but the the early prostate cancer there aren't any specific warning symptoms it fits in with the bladder outflow obstructive symptoms so if somebody's got urinary symptoms, I do try and bring up the subject of prostate cancer quite early because you'd see men's heads click and they don't, men often won't offer that suggestion up. But if you bring it up, are you worried about it? So I often use the question when they come with their symptoms and say, what do you want out of this? Are you worried about prostate cancer? And if there's no sign of it, are you going to leave things alone? Or you're here because you're worried about prostate cancer and you want your symptoms a bit better. So I think it's really hard for the, for the red flag ones for prostate cancer. Advanced prostate cancer are what you're going to see with a lot of advanced cancers. You know, the cachectic chap, the anemic, the tired. You're going to say, right, is prostate cancer is one of my diagnoses here. But the early prostate cancer, you haven't really got any warning symptoms. It is the rectal examination and the PSA. From the bladder cancer point of view, um, smokers as a big risk and and blood so the so the frank hematuria so frank painless hematuria and men it's a phrase i use men don't get utis they do okay but the male with a proven urinary tract infection divides the urology world slightly in half i feel um half of us would investigate one proven urinary tract infection Okay, the pickup rate is small, but you'd investigate it. Others would wait until somebody's had two. Uh, personally, if I've got one proven urinary tract infection and somebody's 50 plus, I think they need investigating. Great, thanks. Um, so we'll jump into our cases and I'll try and read this out because it's a bit of a paragraph. Okay. Um, so our first case is Bob. He's a 72-year-old bus driver um, and he comes in with a seven-month history of frequency and nocturia. And over the last four to six weeks, he is starting to strain more on urination. There's no terminal dribbling and no sensation of incomplete emptying. There's no dysuria and no hematuria, and he doesn't have back pain or weight loss. And he's got a background of hypertension for which he takes ramipril and atorvastatin. So do you want to talk us through your thought process there in terms of categorising Bob's symptoms and what your differentials might be? Okay, I'm trying to get a picture of Bob um, in my head. Um, so he's 72 and he's still working. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, which is pretty good. Um so he's 72 and working because he enjoys it and he's active or he's 72 and still working because he needs the money. Um, but he can still physically work, which is good. And it's quite a physical job. So I've got a reasonably fit 72-year-old chap. Um, the only really urological symptom I think you that I picked up from there is his straining and a little bit of and a little bit of frequency that he's getting. So I'd want to quantify it a bit more because I want to know what his frequency is because some people come and say I'm going to the toilet too often and then when you pin them down and you quiz them they're actually not going that often so a rough rule of thumb I tell um, patients is particularly with getting up at night it's normal for any man to get up once at night so either zero or once is normal and a rough rule of thumb i say to people it's once in your 60s twice in your 70s and three times in your 80s that's that's a kind of average um so i'm looking for a change has it changed so if he's getting up once i'm not particularly worried about it i want him to tell me how frequently he's going so how long can he last between visits to the toilet and particularly as a bus driver is it stopping him work does he have to does he have to stop the bus and look for a loo? Does he have to think, right, I'm going to tailor my fluid intake because I've got a four hours in the bus and I'm not going to cope. So what impact it is having. I would want him to do a voiding diary. 
Okay, I think voiding diaries are incredibly helpful. I, I don't ever ask a pet or I very rarely ask a patient to record what they drink. I just want them to record what they void. And I just ask them to average it to the nearest 50. So they're not trying to look at, is it 27 mils? Is it 90 something mils? Is it 50, 100? You just want a rough idea of the size of the voids. And I do this, I shouldn't confess this. I, I do it for two reasons, okay? One is because I want to see how often they go and how much they're voiding each time they go, totaling up the whole volume over a 24-hour period, okay? Because it should be about a litre and a half to two litres that you're voiding. But the second and most important one, if they can't be bothered to do a voiding diary, their symptoms aren't that bad. So I think it's a really good trick just to try and see how bad it is. So that's what I would do. I think voiding diary is really important. The the straining is the biggest clue here. I think if you if he's got his straining, then my immediate thinking with what you've got is he's he's most likely obstructive, is his, is is his symptom. So I'm putting him in the prostate bladder outflow obstruction category number one. I'll come on to the examination with him. But if you're thinking about what am I going to do with treatment wise for him, if it if you are thinking that he's obstructive, alpha blockers are brilliant. Okay, they're a brilliant drug because they work or don't work really quickly. So you get your answer in the first two weeks. So I would, uh, somebody like him is a great example to say, let's put you on something like Tamsulosin and let's review you. And, and I don't know what it's like in GP, but it, it, I would really like primary care to try someone on Tamsulosin because there's n- no point in coming to me. I start Tamsulosin and he doesn't get a follow-up appointment for another six months in today's world or i say to you try tamsulosin and ask primary care physician to refer him back if it doesn't work it'd be great if they come to the clinic having had a trial of tamsulosin and if it works and improves things bingo you're happy if he's happy you're happy he stays on that and he stays on it indefinitely and what i say to my patients is it's them that decide whether they stay on it or not if life is better on the tamsulosin stay on it but emphasize to them that it's not a course it's something they've got to stay on because a lot of people think, oh, I had my six months of tamsulosin and, and it worked, but then I've got worse again. Well, it will do. Okay, so make sure they stay on it. So I'm thinking him is most likely bladder outflow obstruction with those symptoms. I would want to bring him in. I would want to, and I'm hesitating now because I know this is where this is going to go slightly. I'd want to do a rectal examination and I'd want to do a PSA. <laughs> You're right. We've trapped you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let, let's open that can. Yeah, we have to. <laughs> Either now or later. <laughs> um, before we do, actually, we just had one about the using the, um, do you do you use the IPSS, the International Prostate Symptom Score? I, I, I do. I kind of, if I'm being honest, I'm a bit lazy with it because I kind of do it in my head. Um, but yes, it, it's really good just to, uh, to A, get the patient thinking about it. And really, the best thing is the quality of life bit at the end, because yeah. it gives an indication of whether the patient's happy or not. So the IPSS should be a score plus a, a, a number yeah. from starting with zero interestingly if your quality of life is zero it's really good whereas it should, i always think it should be the other way around um yeah so i so yes it, it is good it's a good indicator to have a conversation with the patient and it's a good marker of treatment brilliant and then um so you preempted where we're about to take this but um just to kind of follow up bob so we brought him in um or in fact we saw him face to face anyway um (laughs) and he's got a normal examination essentially so his observations are normal and there's no renal angle tenderness or or, organomegaly he doesn't have a palpable bladder well well, that's interesting interesting you say that because i think it's really hard to feel a palpable bladder unless you've got a really skinny chap. Okay. So a lot of men are carrying a bit of weight, so you're not going to feel their bladder. You've got to have 300 mils before it goes above the pelvic brim. Mm. So you've got to have at least that in it. I think it's much better to percuss a bladder than it is to palpate a bladder. I mean, I'm fortunate. I've got an old, I've got a portable ultrasound machine in my clinic, so I know exactly how much is in the bladder. But if I haven't for whatever reason, I percuss it rather than palpate it. So you're looking for the dull to percussion. Right. And I think that's much more accurate than palpation. Yeah. And 300 mils takes it above the pubic ring. Yeah. Mm. So that, yeah. So that's an added bonus. Um, so we've done a urine dipstick, which is normal. Um, and then the prostate examination. So 
his prostate's non-tender. There's no obvious enlargement and no firm areas. Uh, we were going to ask you before we moved on to PSA, uh, any tips for assessing the prostate? Anything that you think we, we could be doing better yeah. or that's often <laughs> not done very well? <laughs> I don't know. And I don't, want to, I don't want this to sound patronising. I think it's really difficult to do a prostate examination unless you're doing lots of them. I, I'm fortunate I take I, I don't do radical prostatectomies an, anymore uh, just because I've steered more towards kidney surgery but I've done a, a significant number of them so you, I've held a, a prostate in my hand so you can feel it outside outside the body so you know what it's like um, mm. you're you're going to see them once in a blue moon sort of thing and do that do that rectal examination if you probably once or twice once once a week at the moment I'd say yeah impressive Maybe it seems to be a spat of okay. them. Um, and I'm bearing in mind I'm a portfolio GP as well, so I'm not working full, full time. Okay. I probably do. Yeah, one, one or two weeks. Well, it's good going. Okay, so the advice that I'd give to you is fruit, okay? Okay. So I, I reckon I can estimate a prostate size up to about 60 grams. And above 60 grams, there's been lots of studies to say it's really difficult to know what, what, what it is above that. Um, what most GPs will know is is the size of fruit. So if you put your finger in the back passage and and you feel something the other side, i.e. the prostate, you can imagine right. If it, if I could complete this full circle, if I could get my finger around it, what size will it be? Will it be? And walnut is not a great example because it's hard. But walnut size is it plum size? Is it tangerine? Or is it orange? Once you get to orange, then you're getting to your 60 grams. And what you're doing is you're feeling, if you imagine your prostate is in front of the rectum, you're probably feeling the lower half of that orange. So you, so it's sort of feeling as though, well, if I could extend my finger, can I go up and around it? So I would expect you to be able to feel something walnut size, but feels like a plum. That's a normal size prostate. So about 20 grams, I'd estimate that at. And it, a moderately enlarged where most people go is a 40 gram prostate which is about the size of a plum and so a a ripe plum is perfectly benign normal feeling prostate mm. at about 40 grams and then once you're starting getting to tangerine and orange because they tend to then just have a bit more of a smooth surface and lose the central sulcus as they get bigger and as they get bigger some of them, and this is something not to worry about as well, some of them lift up quite high out of the prostate. They're kind of, because they're so big, they they almost push themselves up for want of a better description. So you can, it's not it's not common, I reckon you can occasionally put your finger in the back, the back passage and not feel the prostate. Because it's lifted so high. So, so it's rare, but you, you're just feeling that, okay, where is it? Is it tiny? Is it, so if you, if you can't, if you really genuinely can't feel something, if you say that in your, in your referral, then I'd understand it. I'd understand it completely. Interestingly, in Manchester, we've, we've sat down and I was part of the group that redesigned the prostate cancer pathway. And there was big debates um, about asking GPs to do prostate examinations. And we've taken it out of the oh. urgent cancer referral pathway. So we're not making it as an, as an essential part of the cancer referral. I'm definitely not overly reassured if I don't find anything. I mean, it's, yeah, because I don't trust my examination findings enough. Yeah. yeah, I've got a couple of very big ones, but other than that. And then if you're looking for the cancerous ones, you're just looking, and they should be smooth, you're just looking for the real subtle ridges. So and anything that you just think isn't that smooth plum. So a, a subtle ridge a slightly firm you know the hard craggy ones and I, I think should be relatively easy to pick up the advanced ones and they're often solid rigid you can't you can't move the anterior aspect of the re of the rectum but it, it's just that subtle ridge or the subtle nodule mm. so it's just having the confidence to just be able to take I, I think take a bit of time over your prostate examination Warn the patient that they're probably going to feel something at the tip of the penis. Warn the patient that they might they might feel like they want to wee. That's perfectly normal because a lot of chaps haven't had it before and they suddenly feel a sensation at the tip of the penis and they're just a bit nervous. They think, oh, does everybody get this? You know, am I about to wee? Is this normal? So just warn them that they'll get that. Yeah, that's great tips. Thank you. So should we talk about PSA then? So we've we've done a UNE and a PSA on Bob. Um, Did you consent him first? Well, that's what I was going to ask. So if you're consenting him, how do you counsel men about checking their PSA and kind of in terms of what the results might mean for them? 
so it's interesting because I think this is this was a major major issue a few years ago because if I, I'll I'll explain and tell them how I'll, I'll cancel them in a bit but I think it was a really big issue a number of years ago because you if you had an abnormal PSA you often ended up having a transrectal prostate biopsy so you had the biopsy you, there wasn't anything in between so you went from walking into a clinic and suddenly getting a blood test which is to a certain degree unreliable to having a procedure where a needle went through your rectum into your back passage which had a varying around the country but about a two percent hospital admission with sepsis so that so it's a it's a big step whereas now we've got mri scans of your of your prostate so we've got a non-invasive no radiation imaging tool that is really useful in the diagnosis of prostate cancer so and i don't think that's really been raised and written about when it comes to to PSA, because you now can do your PSA and you can follow that up with an MRI scan, which can steer you to doing a biopsy or not doing a biopsy. And COVID has kind of escalated the way we do biopsies as well, because we do an awful lot of them transperineal or the majority around the country are transperineal now. So the needle is going through, through the perineum um, rather than going through the rectum. So the infection rate is way, way lower. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of targeted biopsies. So before the MRI scan, you were sampling the prostate. Now, if you've got an abnormal area on your prostate, you target that area and say, right, I'm going to biopsy. I'm going to, I'm going to biopsy this. It's slightly different. But the analogy you say, it's, you know, if, if you said to a woman, OK, you've got some a blood test here that's going to that raises your concern about breast cancer, you would do a mammogram and then you would target something abnormal. You wouldn't sample the whole breast tissue. Okay, so that's essentially where we're going with prostate cancer. We're sampling abnormalities. We're still a certain group of people. You've got to sample the, the whole prostate or people with raised PSAs and a normal MRI scan. But it's much more targeted, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And so in terms of counselling, Bob. Oh, back to your counselling. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'd do is, is I'd, I'd tell him that there is a blood test that helps us predict whether there's prostate cancer there or not. And what it is, it's giving you a relative risk. So it's not it's not a blood test that says if it's at a certain level, there is cancer. And if there's a certain level, there isn't cancer. What it is, it's a blood test that sort of gives you a, a risk factor for, for prostate cancer. The higher it is, the more likely you are to have prostate cancer. But it's a piece of a jigsaw along with your rectal examination and along potentially with scans that will help us. But you've also got to tell them that there are false positives. So it can be raised and there isn't cancer there. So it can be raised and you're sent down a pathway of investigations and we find it's just a benign prostate. So we use a, we use a thing called the PSA density. So if you do an MRI scan of a, of a, a prostate and it's, let's say, 80 grams and your PSA is 7 and your rectal examination is normal and your MRI scan says, well, there's nothing here that's obvious cancer, you've actually got a PSA that's the right level for that size prostate. So you can turn around and say, well, actually, that's that's higher than the average for your age group. So it's higher than your age-related PSA, but it's normal for your size of prostate and you've got nothing abnormal on your scan. Why don't we just watch it? Why don't we just watch your PSA over time? Because if there is something there, it's very early, still very treatable. So let's not step in and do biopsies and find something that we don't want to find. Because you remember, we still... If you biopsy it, if you go down that pathway, taking a step further, you biopsy a lot of people who have got a clinically insignificant prostate cancer. And what's not talked about a lot is the mental impact on telling somebody they've got cancer. You might say this is never going to bother you, but you've still told them they've got cancer every time they fill in a holiday insurance form. They've got cancer. They've got to fill in that. So actually, it's helping us with his management. It can be raised because of prostate cancer. But just just bear in mind, it could be raised for other things. And um, just following on from that, so we understand that when it's normal, there is no that normal necessarily. There is no normal. So <laughs> you put <what> <laughs> now you've fallen into my trap. <laughs> normal ranges. <laughs> so an acceptable range. So if you if you look at a normal rectal examination, yeah, and a PSA that's on the okay, what is accepted as the upper limit of normal, mm-hmm. okay, and you've got no family history of prostate cancer. And you're and the, the studies 
principally around white Caucasian men here, then your your risk of prostate, so if you've got a upper limit of normal, as you put it, but normal rectal examination, you've got about a 3% chance of a old-fashioned biopsy showing a significant cancer. So if you use 3.5 as your cutoff for a man in it who's 62, okay, mm-hmm. and I know this very it varies slightly in labs. So if you've got a 62-year-old man with a PSA of 3.5, a normal rectal ex- examination. He's got about, if we did a, one of the old-fashioned transrectal biopsies with no MRI scan, he's got about a 3% chance of having a significant cancer. Oh, wow. That's a lot higher than I thought. Because I was going to ask if we had a, so upper limit of normal or just acceptable ranges. Um, and the examination was okay and there's no family history or no other uh, no other things could we confidently diagnose benign prostatic hypertrophy but yeah you could say it's risk if he's got bph he's got an enlarged prostate so you'd expect it to be mm-hmm. a bit enlarged yes but if, if he's got an acceptable level of psa have you okay this is going to be really careful and i'm, I'm almost going to say something that retro you know you, you, can, you can end up with triggering lots more questions from people maybe so if you've got a an acceptable psa that doesn't exclude prostate cancer yes yeah. okay yeah. but what it means is your risk is really really small and if there is something there it's likely to be really really early and so you've got mm-hmm. you've got time to watch it potentially and then you can go on something called psa velocity so if you've got somebody who's really health conscious and says right i'm getting my cholesterol checked every year how about i get my psa checked every year then you can say okay we'll do that and if we see an upward trend and it increases by more than one each year then that's a risk that's again increases your risk of prostate cancer so you could have a psa that goes from one to two and you think oh hang on a minute that has increased by 100 percent and by a value of one that's actually that's put you at a risk of prostate cancer certainly if the next one is four then you're going we've gone one two four that i'm worried about and i'm more worried about that than i am somebody who's got a psa of eight who's had a who's got a large prostate on rectal examination mm-hmm. and do you think would there be any other investigations that you think uh, primary care clinicians should be doing apart from the the examination and some of the basic bloods um, so now I would, what I'd really want from primary care is the PSA, the renal function, and a urine dipstick, and that's that's essentially what I'd like. If you can, if you're referring on, then if you've got access to an ultrasound scan, then that is really helpful, just because we know what the post void residual is then. Um, but it's really easy. Every urology department should have a a bladder scanner, so we can scan them very easy on their first clinic yeah. visit. Yeah, I was going to ask when when men might need an ultrasound for urinary symptoms. So would it be in that situation if we were referring onwards? Yeah, I think if you've got somebody, if you take our, our bus driver, Bob, um, then if if he's got those symptoms, it'd be really good for you to say, let's start you on an alpha blocker and I'm going to get a I'm going to get a routine ultrasound scan just to make sure you're emptying your, your bladder properly because you will always get surprised every now and again somebody's not emptying their bladder less than 100 mils I'd I'd sit tight with I'd say fine I, I can cope with that okay a, above 100 mils is a sort of cutoff where you think actually that's that could gradually build up over time yeah and you have touched a little bit on management there for us and we weren't going to talk a lot about it because we are kind of going around presentations and differentials um but yeah, could you talk us briefly through the initial management of uh, benign prostatic <laughs> BPH? <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so I've already alluded to one. So, so your alpha blocker is is really good because you just you, you you can give it to the patient and and they'll tell you whether they're better or not. So that I'd ideally review them between two and four weeks. Um, warn them about the hypotension. So if you've got somebody on multiple antihypertensives, just see how they interact. You, you do get some people that have quite a significant reaction to it. So you just tell them, the, I, I tell them the first time they take it, just make sure they've got an easy day so that if they feel terrible, they can just lie down and say, well, I'm not going to take tomorrow's. Um, interesting, whilst we're on antihypertensive, in America, you can prescribe up to 800 micrograms of tantalosin. So you can prescribe twice as much in America than you can in the UK. It's licensed for. So I've got a few patients on on double the dose off license. And actually, that controls their symptoms as well. 
Um, the other medication that is often used is finasteride or dutasteride, so a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. That's a long-term effect, so it's going to slowly shrink the prostate or stop it progressing. So you're not going to get the instantaneous effect that you will do with um, tamsulosin. So you're looking at a sort of three- to six-month window for patients to report back that that's improving their symptoms. You've got to bear in mind that it also alters the PSA. So most urologists will take note of that, but it can it can reduce it as little as 20%, as much as 80%. So I wouldn't start somebody on finasteride until I've done a PSA on them. So I've got their baseline level. Um, and if it was raised or you're going to investigate them further, I wouldn't start finasteride at all until you've excluded it and you decide how you're going to manage that patient forward. I also don't think it's a wonder drug. Um, the numbers needed to treat is quite high. Um, so I'll be careful of the, the, the men I put on it, and it, it's the larger prostate, so 40 grams plus. There's no there's no benefit if you have got a small prostate. Uh, it's better with people with a higher residual, and it's better with people with a PSA above 1.7, I think it is, but I probably have to look that exact figure up. Um, so there is a select group that are more likely to benefit from them. So I don't use finasteride a lot, and I'd probably, in primary care, just wouldn't start it to be honest with you it slightly muddies the water um if you're so those are the those are the real medications that's why i'm a urologist i don't have to remember many medications um <laughs> so that's that's your that's your bladder outflow medication um you've got your storage ones which essentially form around the anticholinergics so i would use one of the newer anticholinergics um and it depends on your formary, I suppose, whereabouts you are in, in the country. But the the newer ones tend to be once only uh, modified release with a lo lower side effect profile. Um, and you can titrate some of them as well. And I tend to give people a six-week window on anticholinergics. So if, it, if you're not getting any better in six weeks, it ain't going to work. Um, and actually, if, if they're not responding to medication, that's when they ought to be investigated further because... They, these chaps really need a cystoscopy just to make sure they've not got something inside their bladder, principally a bladder tumour. So if if they respond to alpha blockers or respond to anticholinergics, unhappy. If their urine is clear, they don't need to be referred. But if their urine's positive for blood or they don't respond to their to their primary medication, then they need to come and see a urologist and we just need to exclude something in their bladder. You're skipping ahead of us. <laughs> answer and everything it's brilliant <laughs> love it um so we're moving on to case two now um bob's brother nigel hears that we're quite good so he's come to talk to us about his prostatic symptoms or his general lower urinary tract symptoms um he's similar age he's 75 um, and he's got a very similar history of of that mixed picture frequency uh, and then some voiding symptoms as well. He's now, his flow is affected. He's standing at the uri urinal more. And um, we've assessed him. We've done a digital rectal examination and his prostate's a little bit enlarged. Um, the only difference with w Nigel is that his PSA comes back as 8.1. Uh, can you talk us through how you'd manage this case from this stage? Is there any reason why you picked him to be 75? Uh, no. Okay, so... And I'll, I'll explain why I asked that question. So, so working in Manchester, which, which, which I think I've alluded to it, we're, we're trialling a new way of the prostate cancer referral. So if you've got a raised PSA and Bob's brother, what was his name? Nigel. Nigel. Mm -hmm. So Nigel, Nigel has a raised PSA for his age. He's automatically sort of an HSC, so an urgent cancer referral. Yeah. Um, and you've got enough on that. You don't need to do the DRE. So that's enough for him to be referred on an urgent cancer referral. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I said about 75 is there was a lot of debate about this. So if you pick up prostate cancer early, then as a rough rule of thumb, and it is a rough rule of thumb, you need to have a 10-year life expectancy to benefit from any radical treatment. Okay. So... It was the, probably the thing that caused the most debate in setting up these guidelines, and they are guidelines. And 75 is 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 the age that you don't automatically get an MRI scan. So under 75, if you've got an abnormal um, PSA or an abnormal rectal examination, 
you, you get a phone call consultation just to say you're going straight for an MRI scan. So you don't see the see the urologist. You then see the urologist with the results of the MRI scan. 75 and above was the age group that we decided actually they need they, they're not excluded from having an MRI scan. We see them, first of all, just to assess their fitness as to whether we would treat them radically or not. OK, because you can sit and watch you can sit and watch that. So there's no harm going back to Nigel. There's no harm in referring him and treating him at the same time. Mm-hmm. OK, because he can have you'll know whether he'll respond to an alpha blocker within two to four weeks. So he's, he gets that response. So I would still start him on an alpha blocker. And I'd and I would warn him that you know his his blood chest is raised. It might be because he's got a large prostate, but it might be because of an early prostate cancer. And I would emphasise that it's an early prostate cancer. And interesting, I'd use the word I'd use the phrasing. You need that excluded before we can manage your symptoms, because the majority of people who come to a cancer an urgent cancer clinic haven't got cancer. So it's actually it's actually we need to almost change our mindset to people because they all arrive at the clinic thinking they've got cancer. And and if there is something, yep, yeah, they'll investigate it and they'll they'll treat it with a very good cure rate for early prostate cancer. It's extremely good cure rate. It just it's the side effects that come with the treatment that's the problem. So I would if I was in primary care, I would refer him on on an urgent cancer basis, but I would start him on the medication for his symptoms. Because that's why he's come to see you. Yeah. Why delay something? Yeah. Um, we were going to ask you, now this is a, a little bit of a tall ask, um, to just talk us through a bit of a short overview of prostate cancer from the sort of beginning. You've already alluded to early prostate cancer having really good, um, quite good outcomes. It's a bit of a tall ask. <laughs> right. Yeah, are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> I'll try and do it so briefly. What would So the PSA we're often using to try and pick up early early prostate cancer okay early prostate cancer has a very good cure rate in the majority of men now there's always i'm very conscious that i don't know who's listening to this then there will be someone who's had early cancer prostate cancer that hasn't had hasn't had a good result but the majority of them you can treat and you can cure so it's a question of picking the people that would benefit from that cure so if i've got an if i've got a 85 year old chap or i've got a 72 year old chap but neither of them have got a particularly long life expectancy for any reason so the 85 year old understandably being that age has a shorter life expectancy but let's say you've got a 65 year old but they've got multiple comorbidities they've had three or four heart attacks they can't climb up a flight of stairs you're not going to investigate that patient the same way as you investigate a 72 year old who's still running a marathon or is still playing rounds of golf or is is fit and healthy because one of them's got a 10 year plus life expectancy and the other one hasn't so the early prostate cancer you are trying to find and detect in people who have got a 10 year life expectancy moderately raised psas generally less than 20 once it gets above 20 is sort of your your cure rate drops significantly and it's almost like less than 10 greater than 50 or less than 15 less than 20 you've got to do those five cutoff points um so you're looking for the low psas and hopefully the benign rectal examinations or just small nodules and they would go down the mri pathway so they'd have their scan they'd have their biopsy and then they'd have the consultation about whether you treat if there is a prostate cancer there is it one of the aggressive ones that's life-threatening at which point we've hopefully got it early enough that we can treat and you can treat it via a surgical route or a radiotherapy route they both have an equal chance of cure so it's one of those tough decisions for patients because you kind of tell them what you can do and they have to go away and talk it with their family and choose which of the bad options they want to choose that they want to go down so you've got your early prostate cancer that you want to pick up early and treat and the majority of them have got time to be diagnosed and have got time for them to think about the problem we've got is all of the government targets that push people through i think in prostate cancer it does a lot of people a disservice because it pushes them through too quickly and makes them rush for a decision so you've got your early prostate cancer and then you've got if i flip over to the other extreme you've got your advanced prostate cancer uh, where people are getting symptoms for it or it's progressed 
um, they, they're getting back pain, voiding problems, um, anemia. You're not, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to cure those patients, but in diagnosing them and putting them on hormone treatment, you're going to slow down the progression of the cancer and avoid some of the complications or delay some of the complications. You've got your early ones that you want to pick up and treat radically. You've got your late ones that you're trying to treat to improve their symptoms or stop them getting their symptoms and slowly deteriorating. And then you've got the difficult ones in the middle that are a little bit too late to treat, but are not advanced enough to have any treatment. So you put you will put a lot of patients on on watchful waiting because they'll fit into that window where they're not getting any symptoms, but it's more advanced than than you than you can cure it, or they wouldn't they're unlikely to benefit from the cure. They're going to get more problems with the side effects of the the treatment. So you will have a lot of people on watchful waiting, which is you just sit tight, you don't do anything. And you wait until they get symptoms, if they get symptoms, and then you treat them as they've gone into the advanced prostate cancer group and it's very hard to actually tell people that that they've got cancer and actually we're not going to do anything about it so that's one way of splitting it up i think there's probably if i gave if you asked me that question tomorrow i'd probably split it up in a slightly different way and answer it slightly differently (laughs) no i like that way i like that explanation of the watchful waiting yeah um middle bit it made more sense so there's two there's there's two phrases that you'll get as primary care which people which urologists who don't deal with cancer get confused as well and that's watchful waiting and active surveillance and it, there's an important difference between those two because the active surveillance is somebody who's who could have radical treatment so they're still fit enough and their life expectancy is is long enough that they would benefit from the treatment but they've got a prostate cancer that may never progress so you've got it early and it may grow so slowly so they're on active surveillance so they're being really closely monitored so that if it's progressing you're going to step in and treat them with radical treatment Whereas the watchful waiting group, if the terminology is used correctly, they're the ones that you're never going to treat radically. You're only going to treat them if they become symptomatic with a more advanced prostate cancer. So you can see how somebody, you know, somebody could start as a 68-year-old fit and healthy chap that you think, actually, we're going to put you on active surveillance. We're going to watch this for a number of years. And at some stage, you're going to go, actually, You've now become a fitness or an age where you're never going to have radical treatment. So you've almost flipped from active surveillance over to watchful waiting. No, oh, that makes sense. That's actually very clear. And there's there's lots of new treatment. I mean, all of the new treatment for advanced prostate cancer is still all based mainly around hormone treatment. So, but it's all that there are newer there are newer drug medications which are often given often given by the oncologist as opposed to the surgeons. But so there's 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 lots of new things around the corner. Excellent. I think that was that was a good summary in the short time frame that we had. <laughs> We're gonna we'll move on to our for our last case now. So this is Mohammed, who's a 63 year old teacher. Um, so he's coming in with a nine month history of urgency, frequency, and nocturia. In the past few months, he has suffered some embarrassing episodes of incontinence. Um, he doesn't have any voiding issues, and he doesn't have any problems with his stream or straining. Um, His past medical history is type 2 diabetes, hypertension and obesity. And he takes amlodipine, metformin, and I'm going to kill Sarah for putting this drug. (laughs) Canagliflozin or canagliflozin, some people call it. Okay. That's That's a diabetic drug. That's a diabetic drug, yeah? Inhibitors, yeah. Okay. Are you trying to test me as well? (laughs) I'm revising as I I write these. But also it makes you wee out glucose, so I just thought I'd throw it in. (laughs) Careful. So his examination... um, is essentially normal abdomen, external genitalia, um, rectal exam all appear normal. Um, and we've done his renal and PSA bloods and they're also normal. Um, and his last HbA1c was 70. Um, so what are you thinking with this presentation? Okay, I'm glad you told me his using these were normal because the one thing the one thing I worry about incontinence, um, particularly, and I'll just I'll, I'll say it now in case I forget is one of the red flag signs, not necessarily for cancer, but for urology is nocturnal enuresis. So if people are bedwetting at, at night and the, the older guy with mild or no urinary symptoms, they're often in, mm. in chronic retention. Um, so, so you worry then that they're storing an awful lot of fluid and then you can be in what's called high pressure chronic retention. Um, whereas you're not only retaining the fluid in your bladder, but it's causing a back pressure on your kidneys 
Um, so so they're, they're the guys that I'm really worried about. So if you've got somebody who's, who's gone into nocturnal enuresis, they're, they're the ones we are concerned about. Um, so the fact is using ease are normal. He's he's not he's almost certainly not going to fit in that group, and if he is, he's early, early stages of it. But you've your symptoms that you have have given me there, uh, principally, are, are looking more on the storage side of things. Um, I think that's what you're steering towards as well. He's also di- he's also diabetic, okay, and he's overweight. So overweight, and it's it's difficult, but because he might be gone past. the point in a return but if you imagine all that weight sort of sitting down on your bladder then it's going to be difficult for your bladder to fill up so and if you try and explain that to patients when they're coming to you with urinary symptoms and are moderately or severely overweight it's amazing how many people if they lose a bit of weight their urinary symptoms can improve so don't don't forget the conservative measures don't just jump in flying flying in with the with the drug treatment so i'd be sitting down and chatting to him um principally making sure that his fluid intake is appropriate. So what's his caffeinated intake, uh, particularly fizzy drinks? Um, so really pin them down on what they drink because lots of people say, oh, I drink lots of fluid. So you tick the box, yeah. But then you ask them, um, just ask them exactly what they drink. Uh, to be honest with you, stopping caffeine, uh, I think works in probably most about a third of people. I think more people, it doesn't make any difference, but it, it is worth trying it. We are the only animals that drink anything other than water or milk. So that's um, just something for a food for thought um, for them to just educate them, make sure they drink water. Um, how can you manage his, his diabetes? Can you get his diabetes under good control would be one thing as well. And then if you're looking at urological issues, I would want I don't know whether you told me this. You told me he's using these and his PSA were normal. I don't know what his urinalysis is, but I'd want his urinalysis. Um, and then he would be somebody in primary care that I would try on an anticholinergic. Before we talk about management, is there any other investigations you would do or would you be happy with the urinalysis? I'm happy with the urinalysis. I mean, if you can get an ultrasound scan, the sooner you get an ultrasound scan, the better. So you're going to try, again, I don't really want him coming to my clinic without, a trial of anticholinergic because that's going to be the first thing we're going to give him. If he's got some blood in his urine, then we're going to investigate him, but it'll be a routine investigation with microscopic hematuria. Mm. If he's got frank hematuria, he obviously goes on the urgent cancer pathway. Um, but if you can get the ultrasound scan whilst you're trying conservative measures like weight loss, and it depends how bad his symptoms are, he sounds like he's in trouble now because he's getting incontinent episode. Yeah. Okay. So, th- so that's the one that you're thinking, okay, we really need to do something. Um, so I would give him a trial of anticholinergics and I'd probably review him at four to six weeks to see how he's responding to it. If he's responding a bit to it at four weeks, you can keep him on the anticholinergics and see if it gets on, on top of it. But if he's not responding to the anticholinergics, he needs to come in and see us and we need to look inside his bladder number one. Okay. And then you can, we would progress to investigate him further because he's kind of fitting into, I think where we're heading here with, with this one is a detrusor overactivity type picture. Okay. And what you would want to do with this, this person, once you've excluded anything nice in his bladder, is have a look at his urodynamics to see how strong those contractions are. Because if he's getting really strong contractions, we're going to struggle with him. So it's, it's trying to quantify the significance of, of his disease. And whilst I'm on that, just with, with somebody who's got those overlapper symptoms of the prostate obstructive symptoms and the bladder storage symptoms, there's absolutely no problem doing an alpha blocker and an anticholinergic. Yeah. Okay. So you can try them both. If you do want to try them both, try the alpha blocker first because it gives you that quick response and then add in the anticholinergic afterwards if they're still getting storage symptoms. But you don't. we don't worry about using them together. Okay. Yeah. That's really good to know. That's really that's a really good tip. <laughs> but please do the conservative measures, okay? Make sure they're drinking the, the the correct fluid and get the ultrasound scan because that just makes that appointment more useful when they come and see us. Yeah. And do you think for somebody like him, it sounds like you're thinking bladder, bladder diary as well, still really useful for both? Yeah, and I mean, I would always do it. So I would still 
sorry it's me sort of thinking it's it's the obvious for me i would always do it for anybody with urinary symptoms i would always do the ipss score because it can stay not only does it give you the total score but you can look at the breakdown of where they're scoring high mm -hmm. so are they scoring on the storage symptoms or are they scoring on the obstructive symptoms so i would always do anyone with urinary symptoms i would always do avoiding diary and i would always do an ipss he says with through gritted teeth because I do it up in my head. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. <laughs> and all that information, if you can send it, if you can send it on to us, it just means that first consultation is is productive. I think. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing that they're they're like gold at the moment. So doing everything so that it's not going to be something really simple that sends them back and has to you know you have to wait another six months to get to get seen. So the the more you can do. Uh, the better definitely yeah um and i think you've covered the last question i was going to say was um was just about how can we definitely tell it is um an overactive bladder but you've gone through when to refer and, and when we can manage in primary care so that's perfect it's it's really hard because an awful lot of them are you've you've described someone there when you just started reading you thought okay they, they want distrusor overactivity when you're getting halfway through the the description but there is a lot of overlap between bladder outflow obstruction and detrusor overactivity. So you get with, if you don't treat your bladder outflow obstruction, if the if the men ignore it, then what they do is they then get detrusor overactivity on top of that. Oh. So the detrusor, the detrusor overactivity is often secondary to your BPH. So your, your, your bladder muscle changes as it's, as it's trying to work hard, essentially. The fibers change and then they, they then become unstable. And then the problem you've got then is if you do need to do corrective surgery, you're then relieving the obstruction, but they've still got the overactive bladder. So actually, that's the group of men that you warn that they've almost gone too far and their risk of incontinence after a TURP is much higher because you've got to hope that their bladder settles down mm. either by themselves or, or medically. So you do want to treat the BPH early if you can. Yeah. So it's not always as straightforward as it seems. There's often an overlap, and actually, the alpha yeah. blockers can be really, really useful. Yeah, they're they're ri they're ri they're my. As I said, I don't have to remember many drugs, but that is, <laughs> it is my favourite one uh, because it answers a question. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it either works or it doesn't work. Be beware that you can with BPH you can get what's called a middle lobe. So you get a, a bit of the prostate which grows up and into the bladder, almost acts like a bull valve, and the alpha blockers don't work in in that group. Mm. So. So if the alpha blocker doesn't work, it hasn't excluded BPH, but it, it, it you know, you've tried it and we've got an answer from it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I can't believe that you've managed to cover so much in so little time. Yeah, really <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, well, I hope it's helpful. Yeah. We were just going to ask you about sort of take home messages, um, just in terms of your general practice, primary care audience. Um, what do you, what would you like us all to take away from chatting with you today? What I'd like to say is, a, don't be afraid to refer, okay? So if, if if you're worried, particularly with the prostate cancer and the PSA, okay, because I think there's an awful lot out there that patients turn up and say, my GP, I've been trying to get my GP to do a PSA and they won't do it. Now, I don't know what happens with that conversation, but we hear that quite often. Uh, yeah. And you hear, some, oh, I had my PSA done ages ago and I wasn't referred on. If you are worried about it, will happily take it off, off your hands. Absolutely no problem. So if, you, if, the, if there's a patient who's concerned or wants to be referred because of prostate cancer, send them, send them our way. Don't be afraid about doing a PSA because now we've got the MRI scan. I think we've got that intermediate step that doesn't mean you're going blood test to a, a nasty rectal ex examination. You've got something that gives us more information. So I think that argument is slightly gone. Um, and then sort of my ask to primary care is just try the alpha blockers, try the anticholinergics, try the conservative measures, try and get them to come with avoiding diary. Okay. And if you can request an ultrasound scan, if you think you've got time, you request the ultrasound scan as well. So as much upfront investigation that you can do will work a lot better for us. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. Honestly, this has been a great episode and such a great yeah. chat with you. <laughs> Well, it's been yeah, a pleasure. It's been lovely. really good talking to you too. I've learned lots as well. <laughs> so that was an absolutely amazing talk, Lisa. Um, 
how did you feel about it? What are your learning points? That was good. There are so many learning points I've written down. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know which ones to talk about, but I'll maybe I'll go in order. So I'll start at the top ones. I think uh, the first one I wrote down was about the frequency being an overlap symptom. Um, and I just thought his explanation of that was really useful and about thinking about it can be the bladder not emptying or the bladder not filling um, and how that that's why that sits in that middle part and can be a avoiding symptom or an obstructive symptom um yet actually i I didn't quite get that what can you because i get it with frequency being for overactive bladders that it's contracting quickly yeah but what what is it about the voiding what because so you're supposed to go every like your bladder will fill so if you're not emptying Mm -hmm. it properly it'll be faster to fill and make you feel like you need to go ah okay yeah yeah i like it um but yes, yeah, so I thought that was interesting about um, uh, yeah about symptoms. It's been a while since I've looked at this topic, and then just going back to basics and going right, what's what are obstructive or voiding symptoms, and what are storage symptoms? I found like really really useful. Um, in fact, I think before I came into this talk, I thought right now I totally understand everything and I can immediately diagnose everything. But then he's just thrown it into a little bit of murky water with that frequency. Um, mm-hmm question the fact that that can be the overlap and uh, also that um, if it is that people have an enlarged prostate treating that first can be quite important and also you get your answer in terms of if it is a contributing factor quite quickly or most of the time so I thought yeah that was (laughs) that was really really useful yeah no it was it was the there was loads of good tips about PSA to be fair but um, just from my point of view I thought it was useful um, to just reinforce that it's it gives you a risk um, and there can be false positives and can be false negatives with it but um, as he said it's a piece of a jigsaw so we shouldn't be looking at it alone in isolation and it just should form part of that risk assessment and help aid the thinking around prostate cancer mm-hmm. um, so yeah and, and obviously all the information about the MRI and the change from going straight to biopsy and things that does change the conversations that you might have with men yeah, definitely that the stakes of having a raised PSA aren't quite as high because it doesn't necessarily mean you're definitely stuck having uh, a prostate biopsy and a 2% chance of getting sepsis from that. Actually, you are going for the MRI, MRI scan first and then having that conversation potentially afterwards. And then now it's less yeah. <laughs> less of a risk, which is amazing. Yeah, Exactly. I think there's obviously still the, the risk of false reassurance Um, But as long as that is counselled from the outset that having a negative test doesn't rule out prostate cancer, I think then that's that's a bit better to manage. Um, I really liked talking about bladder diaries. I've seen a a couple of apps with them and I think they can be quite useful. It's quite a lot for GPs to be doing, but Mm. um, I think it can be really quite useful. Um, I, I was surprised that only a third of people with high caffeine intakes get an improvement of their symptoms when they, yeah. when they stop it. But so we'll stop giving people quite such a hard time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I really liked about percussing bladders. Yeah, I'd written down about examination tips. So his bits about percussing the bladder. Yeah, yeah, both that and the prostate examination. And the fruit. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If that written down too, that was really good. Um, And you're not going mad if you don't feel a prostate. (laughs) No. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I guess the the biggest final bit that I'd written down was just about that difference between what the explanation about watchful waiting um, and what Mm. it actually meant, um, because that was really useful to go back to basics and figure out where those men actually sit, and then the difference between that and active surveillance. Um, Mm. That was really good for him to go through, um, and it's a lot clearer in my mind now. Yeah, I can't believe just in the middle of everything, sort of being able to ask him about, so just give us a brief overview of prostate cancer, forgetting how complicated that condition is in terms of a lot of people die with it rather than from it and working out who are the people that that you, you, you do want to be doing the treatment for, the radical treatment. So um, to have given such a, um, a clear overview of it and, and breaking it down in that way in terms of early prostate cancer, normally good um good cure rates and then versus the advanced disease and then everyone in the middle so yeah i thought that was really interesting yeah Yeah. fabulous talk yeah exactly so um if you want to get in touch with us as always and we will put the links um in the episode description and you can go through all the usual channels again thank you to all of the people out there who are still listening to us um, and all of our new listeners um, there's still new people coming along and it's lovely to see after a couple of years that uh, people still enjoy the the podcast so thank you to everybody yeah brilliant until next time on primary care knowledge boost 
This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.